Welcome to our listeners. I'm your host, Jude Al-Qurani. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto's Department for the Study of Religion and Center for Diaspora and Transnational Studies. The Reading Muslims Project at the Institute of Islamic Studies is a Connaught Global Challenge recipient. Its mandate is to interrogate the place of textuality within Islamic studies. One of its areas of focus is Islam and anthropology. To this end today, we have with us Dr. Basit Iqbal. So Dr. Iqbal has recently joined the Department of Anthropology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, as an assistant professor. Dr. Iqbal's research and teaching interests coalesce around the themes of displacement, humanitarianism, religion, secularism, and violence. He joins McMaster after completing a PhD at the University of California, Berkeley in 2019, where he wrote a dissertation entitled Tribulation and Repair, Islamic Humanitarianism After the Syrian War. Based on fieldwork in Jordan and Canada, Dr. Iqbal's book is, and this is a quote of his word, an ethnography of religion and refuge in the aftermath of violence and dispossession, which explores how refugees and aid workers relate to each other and to the ongoing catastrophe in Syria through inhabiting the tradition of Islam. Dr. Iqbal is one of the leaders of the Reading Muslims Ethnographic Methods Hub, and we're grateful to have the opportunity to speak to him today. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Iqbal, if I may call you Basit. Well, of course, and thank you for having me, of course. Thank you. So let's dive right in. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. And um, so I, I want to start off by kind of setting the stage with um, where the anthropology of Islam is, where anthropology is uh, on the question of textuality. And so reading Muslims, uh, as we both know, explores the politics of textuality in studies of Islam. So if we think of early anthropologists of Muslim societies, so Geertz, uh, Gilson, and Gellner, they distinguished themselves from Orientalists by focusing on how Islam was practiced by lay people on the ground rather than analyzed by intellectuals in their writing. And then came Talal Asad, who reminded anthropologists of the centrality of texts to the Islamic tradition, inspiring scholars after him to examine how texts are embodied in practice and debated among individuals and communities. So Basit, I want to ask you a few questions and, and kind of give you the chance to take it in whichever direction uh, you, you think is best. Um, but I'm very curious about your thoughts of, okay, as an anthropologist working in a discipline share, shaped by these methodological and conceptual legacies, how do you personally understand anthropology's relationship to textuality today? Uh, as a second question, um, what are some unique challenges that you think anthropologists face when trying to engage texts as part of their research? And then to follow that, is there anything distinct about the place of Islamic texts within anthropology in particular? All right. Thank you so much. And thank you for the for the introduction and also for um, that, that, that question, which kind of is, a, I found a very kind of uh, concise and, and elegant kind of framing of this, the history of this question. Um, and it's curious also because we inherit these questions, which are kind of grounded in methodological oppositions, maybe, um, and they they don't really go away. <laughs> and so um, there's these, these ways that, as you say, Asad's work comes to, as a response, certainly, to 
um, the effort by earlier anthropologists to distinguish themselves from Orientalists, but then he himself then comes to stand as a, you know, a kind of in the broader anthropological polemics or whatnot, he himself comes to stand as a figure advocating, um, you know, a, a return to textuality and orthodoxy and so on. And uh, I think at, at the moment, it, it does seem like, on the one hand, the anthropology of Islam seems to still be inhabiting the space of that debate, but not always in the most productive ways. And so some of these oppositions between, between uh, you know, the kind of, uh, in, in opposition between the scholastic traditions and vernacular ones, um, everyday Islam versus kind of uh, orthodoxy and so on, the, the, the space of tradition versus the space of the imaginal or the dramaturgical and so on. These kinds of oppositions, I think, are, are uh, they've, they've returned in various ways. And for myself, certainly kind of, as you, you led with a question about as myself as an anthropologist working in a discipline shaped by these legacies, um, for myself, I, I, I find maybe, I find those polemics less helpful than turning to how uh, the space of tradition itself as, a, as, an, as an analytic concept encompasses these different formations. And, and part of that too, I think, has to do with the question of is one interested in a um, uh, in, in practicing, you know, an anthropology of Muslims or an anthropology of Islam, which seems to open onto, um, you know, not certainly not mutually exclusive, right, and certainly related sets of questions, but also slightly distinct ones as well. And I think I think um, part of the inheritance, right, as we're talking about the inheritance of or the, the legacies, as you put it, of these methodological conceptual debates has been maybe a, a blurring of, of that distinction um, in which the an anthropology of Muslims would tend toward um, demonstrating kind of more familiar entanglements with market and state with with a whole range of, of uh, you know the, the, the politics that come along with that and then an anthropology of Islam might um, you know specifically turn to how the uh, tradition of Islam is inherited contested uh, debated um, you know how how its boundaries are inscribed and reinscribed, how how exploration and prescription and so on, in fact, work together within its broad kind of ambit. And, and then more more particularly, and this is where I think my own interest uh, lies, or my, my own interest turns toward, it would be the inheritance of um, kind of how a concept of inheritance works with a concept of form of life within this broad space of tradition. Um, and maybe part of that, that uh, kind of the inheritance of this polemic, you know, is rooted in how people understand, <laughs> again, not to get too exegetical here, but how people understand, you know, uh, this one sentence in um, Asad's idea of an anthropology of Islam, where he writes that you know, if one wants to write an anthropology of Islam, one should begin, as Muslims do, from the concept of a discursive tradition that includes and relates itself to the founding texts of the Quran and the Hadith. And so within that sentence, the phrase, as Muslims do, on the one hand, it doesn't seem necessary to that sentence, you know, um, as in, as in, as a methodological prescription, one could imagine that sentence without that, that phrase being inserted, you know, in, in the first, after the first phrase, um, and after the first clause. But, on the, so on the one hand, the, the, the place of that phrase kind of confounds critics who see in that, um, an advocacy of, you know, kind of adopt 
kind of normatively or kind of adopting into one's analysis, you know, kind of solidarity or something with the subjects one studies. And so then the lines between kind of normative, kind of uh, um, normative arguments and analysis get blurred and there's no space for critique. And that kind of uh, produces a set piece within which any kind of argument is already kind of a foregone conclusion. Uh, or one, one could read that, that phrase differently, right, as a reminder of the anthropologist's positionality. And uh, the significance of that phrase should then be viewed in relation to kind of the, the institution of the discipline of anthropology, right, and its material and political history. Um, so yeah, so so then if, if viewed in the latter light, I would say then that, that an emphasis on a tradition's aspirational coherence, as Asad puts it, uh, doesn't so much inscribe a spatial division, like inside versus outside the tradition, right? It doesn't produce tra- tradition as a bubble in which the pious live as opposed to in which, you know, everyone else lives and so on. Um, instead, it would allow us to think about coherence as a as a temporal relationship, not a spatial one, right? So coherence as an effort, a tense effort, right, that's, that's conducted across time and not as consolidated across space. Anyway, that, that, that went in a few different directions, but um, those are some of the, the problems, I'd say, that um, we inherit maybe as part of those legacies that you described. In terms of unique challenges anthropologists face when trying to engage texts, on the one hand, you know, I think, I think there's no there's no specific disciplinary mandate to engage texts, and so that leaves the field open for a variety of approaches and kind of methodological affordances. Um, yeah, so so on the one hand, there's no there's no specific mandate to engage those texts. On on the other hand, um, it does tend to reinscribe maybe a methodological division that I've I, you know I've heard kind of thrown about between historians who emphasize continuities and anthropologists to emphasize discontinuities. And so I think part of the the unique challenges that um, anthropologists face might be in in trying to appreciate a kind of an inweave between the historical legacies that are often grounded in textual traditions or have some relationship to them while still you know noting the distinct the distinctiveness of what they're engaging. So it's not a new problem and I think this problem comes up apart from text as well in terms of weaving between the general and the particular. I want to kind of uh, go back to something you mentioned a bit earlier, which was uh, your phrasing of, you know, not to get too exegetical here. Uh, And then your focus on this... um very important phrase I think you you rightfully point out that that Assad includes is of one should begin as Muslims do so I feel like both of these kind of comments and statements that you uh, touch upon and reflect upon um, point to sort of a deeper um, issue uh, here because I think um, precisely this question that you bring up of you know starting as Muslims do what does that mean what does that entail what does that look like Um, does you know does produce a little bit of discomfort um, for anthropologists. And I'm curious about sort of if you can speak to maybe our next question, uh, either, you know, continuing that thought or, or you know, go, taking it in a different direction of this demarcation between theology and anthropology. That is, you know, um, in many ways, the foundation of anthropology as a discipline. Um, and how does, you know, Assad's uh, uh, encouragement for us to think about 
um, you know, texts or, or Islam as Muslims do? What does that do to that demarcation? And then maybe specifically also reflecting on what does that do to anthropologists who appear to be of Muslim heritage or are visibly Muslim or I do identify as Muslim? How is that also complicated in that sense? Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> All right. So the, the distinction between theology and anthropology, on the one hand, certainly, as you said, um, the, the kind of within the history of anthropology as a discipline, the ways, you know, efforts to, to distinguish the discipline from theology, kind of evacuated space from theology, uh, kind of um, were, were kind of uh, foundational to the formation of the discipline. And then on the other hand, due to this oppositional relationship, you know, there's all these ways that the theological heritage creeps back in. And I'm thinking in particular of uh, Khalid Furani's recent book, Redeeming Theology, where, Redeeming Anthropology, that was a funny slip, where he um, discusses kind of the, 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 on the one hand, how this theological legacy and relationship, or relationship to theology kind of formed anthropology as such, but then also what, 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 what happens to the discipline of anthropology when it is kind of, uh, when it seeks this kind of immunity, right, uh, from theology. And maybe, you know, in, in some ways, uh, he doesn't necessarily do it in these same terms, but we can maybe describe it as a re- reflection on the kind of autoimmune reaction then is set into play by this this kind of oppositional relationship and he ends up arguing for anthropology to um, humble itself and learn from theology right and uh, relinquish its kind of self-sovereignty over uh, the domain of the human and admit you know the the domains of the intemporal the inhuman and um this isn't kind of an effort. This isn't a project or an effort that's done under the sign of a kind of, you know, project of reenchantment. Instead, it's an effort to. He put he puts it something like you know to discern what's worthy what's worthy of life's devotion, <laughs> and so it's a reflection on the work of, of revelation, on. Um, all the ways that, that that kind of claims to sovereignty kind of in knowledge as well as in power are related and um, what kind of relinquishing those claims might look like for the discipline of anthropology. So certainly a tangled relationship between anthropology and theology. Khaled's book isn't isn't done specifically with a view to Islam and what Islamic texts or, or kind of anthropology of Muslims might uh, provide. It's, it's conducted in a far broader vein kind of for the discipline as such but um i think its lessons certainly hold true for for kind of anthropology of islam as well um and and it would i think also reconfigure you know i, I think the, the 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 positionality of kind of muslims conducting anthropologies of islam also ends up implicated in that same relationship in various ways and again that's not distinctive to anthropology but because or to the discipline but maybe because of uh, these kind of contested legacies where where kind of uh, normative analysis is often kind of uh, positioned against critical analysis then the burden of uh, locating oneself in relationship to that polemic is then placed on the kind of individual anthropologist and then uh, so in any case reconfiguring that that relationship between theology and anthropology would also perhaps relieve you know individual scholars from from having to locate themselves in relationship 
relationship to this sharp demarcation between uh, normative analysis and critical analysis or something. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very helpful way to think about it, especially considering, you know, what we know of uh, how things function in this neoliberal world is that, you know, burdens are not shared equally. And so thinking of it as a structural issue and that needs to be reconfigured, as you say, as opposed to an individual personal one, uh, I think is very helpful in that sense. Mm, and, and, and some of what, uh, just like thinking about his book now in relationship to this, or in, in relation to this conversation, um, one thing I appreciate about that, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's very imaginative and, and kind of uh, provocative in various ways. But one thing I appreciate about it is how it does uh, relate things again to broader questions of sovereignty as well, mm-hmm. kind of. Um, so so it's it's got a view to the discipline of anthropology, but also kind of broader kind of epistemological formations and their kind of uh, political underpinnings. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's uh, very, very helpful to think with. Um, so I want to turn a bit now sort of, you know, from these larger meta questions to something more concrete and specific about, you know, what does what do Islamic texts mean for anthropologists for doing ethnography? And I want to do so by having you maybe tell us a little bit about your research and your fieldwork. Um, and if you could briefly speak to, you know, how firstly you engage Islamic texts in the field, you know, do they figure in what does that look like as an anthropologist? Um, and then how do you engage Islamic texts then in your writing? Are they the same texts? Are they different? Do they transform in that kind of um, uh, translation? And then what kind of problems arise when you translate them, whether, you know, culturally um, or linguistically even, um, from, you know, taking it a lived text from the field into ethnic ethnographic writing, which is, of course, its own textual genre. Um, so anything you can speak to in that in that direction would be great. Great, thank you. So, um, how do I engage Islamic texts in the field? So initially, um, my 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 first main project it was as you as you mentioned, kind of following the role of the, the, the social the social life of Islamic theological concepts like tribulation and community and uh, repair or reform um, across different humanitarian sites in Jordan and. Canada. Um, but initially, I, I, I came to the project with uh, an interest in tracing how, with an interest in how the war in Syria had displaced the contemporary Islamic tradition of knowledge that was rooted in the Levant, right? And so um, across across uh, Syria now and, and across into the diaspora, there's all these sites, you know, with that are, that are structured <clears throat> formally or informally toward inheriting uh, Sharia knowledge in various ways, and whether their curriculum is modeled off of the tradition of Levantine scholasticism or that of, you know, Gulf Salafism. And so, um, and, and so, uh, I came to the project initially kind of trying to follow this, the interruption and displacement of that knowledge tradition under pressure of the war and um, exiled from the institutions that had supported it. And so um, you'll see, for instance, like in, um, in you know, video recordings from various sites, including, you know, for instance, the one I'm thinking about, you know, from a rebel-held region of northern Syria in 2019, it just, it's a graduation ceremony, right? And it shows, um, you know, a dozen bearded men bundled against the cold um, in a long room with white plaster walls and you know they've got wool coats and uh, dark hats and tired eyes and they're there to you know they've been coming there to study the Quran and learn the details of 
of the law, right? And so these kinds of sites are, you know, they're they're everywhere in in uh, both within Syria and in the diaspora, and and so um, I was initially interested in that, and then the kinds of texts that I would that, uh, come across if I were doing that project, right? Um, the 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 uh, onus then on the anthropologist would be to kind of you know engage these texts, figure out the relationship to the to that broader curriculum that was then displaced into these other sites, and then in try to locate these texts in relationship to that tradition, right? Um, but as I got further into the fieldwork, I realized that I, um, instead of kind of tracing the displacement and interruption of that tradition, which is you know still a very important project and something I might return to, um, instead of that, I wanted to understand the devastation of the war through that tradition instead. And so the genre of the project shifted from the kind of maybe sociology of knowledge, we can say, toward, you know, more uh, tenuous or like existential terrain, right? Because then the the um, questions about the war and so on are, are about what constitutes suffering, what is exile, what is uh, what does it mean to kind of strive to discern the, 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 the divine decree in um, a situation of extremity. And so um, the kinds of questions shifted, and so the relationship to textuality then also shifted. And so at that point, the, the relationship to text was no longer one of like trying to kind of trace a lineage, right? And or kind of trace or, or, or figure out what the proper relationship of these texts was in their teaching to this historical curriculum or this historical tradition and its its institutions of learning. Instead, the relationship to textuality became one of trying to kind of contour these concepts of tribulation, of community, of repair in ways that were informed by the textual tradition, but not, you know, at the same time, not, not reducible to it as well, right? Because, um, then, then uh, the, the effort. Then this is kind of a methodological point that I'm also taking from Stefania Pandolfo's work, where the effort there is not to refer Islamic concepts as they are textually articulated or ethnographically articulated to their like historical or cultural environment, and um, instead it's to look to such concepts for what they can. Um, for what for what they can open up, right? For what they can elucidate, and granting all the different gaps and hiatuses and lacunas of translation. So the former project, I think, would have ended up kind of inclining me to toward uh, you know the, the tropes of rupture and continuity, right? How are these texts read now in ways that were different from before? What are the reconfigurations we can follow? Again, kind of locating us back in that. Uh, polemic between historians and anthropologists and the ethnographer's task there ends up being more kind of forensic right to account for these concepts influence over modern life um, and instead instead shifting to what these concepts um, make possible in themselves I think ends up you know certainly more more tenuous as I said but also um, more I guess more kind of it ends up closer in some ways to the the humanitarian sites of my fieldwork as well. 
And uh, how do you, because I mean, focusing on, you know, concepts like tribulation, like uh, qada, um, you know, these very theological concepts, how do you kind of suss out the, you know, where they're coming from, what they actually mean? Is it just kind of through analysis of, you know, people's kind of discourse, looking very closely at the, how they phrase things, or, or is it looking at how they react in particular moments, you know, sort of a more um, praxis-oriented uh, understanding of what these concepts mean? But how do you how do you dig into that? Um, so I think for, for tribulation and for community, for like, so ibtida or fitna and ummah, mm-hmm. those I think were, were maybe, they were easier to, to grapple with because they were, maybe because they did pervade the sites of my fieldwork and so um, there are a range of, of like a more nuanced ways I think that that um, I, I can and, and should approach them <laughs> but but mm-hmm. at least you know at this at this level uh, kind of discursively uh, these these terms are the site of, of fierce debate as well and so one thing that I do is kind of stage a, a stage a debate through juxtaposing four different ways of approaching the concept of tribulation and uh, as a concept you know it, it certainly it is thematized by people already without myself kind of forcing this debate um, and so you have you have configurations of tribulation in which the war and the dispossession um, and so on itself is not read as a tribulation instead it's read as you know as, as an infliction uh, or uh, sorry as an affliction and then the tribulation in fact is putting to the question those contiguous to the affliction right so those who stand beside the, the those who see the worst right um, and so the tribulation then becomes a question of asking oneself what is one's capacity right can one meet what is asked it's a question of of ethics and politics um, but it's not related it, 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 the distinction there is is being made between those who are are victims those who um, you know th- those who who saw the worst I think is, is Primo Levi's term for this uh, and, and so in some ways it kind of echoes Agamben's reading of Primo Levi in terms of uh, the, the distinction between victims and witnesses and here between the afflicted and between those who are um, are, are, are forced to ask oneself what they can do. Just going to turn off that notification. Sorry about that. No. Um, so that's one configuration of tribulation. Another one um, is far more militant. And in in those terms, yes, the war is certainly the tribulation, as is um, the, the Assad regime itself, right? And the response to those who say, oh, you know, one should not, you know, support the rebels, one should not engage in, you know, and one should adopt a more quietist approach. The response there is that, well, you know, the the prison torturers and so on were already busy before the outbreak of the war, and this is not uh, this isn't a fitna of the type that one should stay away from. This is instead, you know, a very clear battle between between um, you know between evil and you know those who are trying to oppose it. And so, so th- th- these kinds of debates are already happening in, in brief. And, and not always in these stark and dramatic terms, but mm-hmm. 
and at different scales, right? So mm-hmm. at this kind of learned, um, you know, theologically informed uh, and, and, you know, incited at, at that register, and then also in a far more, you know, vernacular sense as well. And so um, in terms of, of tracing out the the stakes of this debate, then it becomes a matter of again trying to locate some of these positions against the the kind of textual heritage, right, of the term and how it comes up, and and um, and showing some of that theological complexity. But but I don't take upon myself the burden of, as I was saying earlier, kind of forensically accounting for like a, one specific one specific articulation of tribulation and how it's opposed to another one, um, and instead just trying to again because I don't think kind of the inheritance of the tradition necessarily works that way right people can be trained in different you know sub-traditions and so on like earlier I was contrasting you know Gulf Salafism to Levantine scholasticism you know and so these kinds of formations are certainly there but um, when it comes to to ethnographic questions I don't think people immediately reflect one of one tradition or another either and so that I think might be something that anthropology can bring to these questions, you know, which intellectual history or um, the work of historians maybe cannot. Mm-hmm. No, this is uh, wonderful. I mean, I'm partly asking these questions for selfish reasons as well, because I my work deals with the question of destiny, um, and it's not necessarily a topic that, you know, comes up uh kind of organically, but it's always there present. And so I'm, you know, definitely going to pick your brain some more later about, about how you deal with these questions. Um, but to kind of move on to, to my next question, uh, and this is a, a simpler one, but I'm curious if, you know, I'm sure you've been doing a lot of reading with your teaching now and when writing up your, your manuscript. Um, if you could name one or two recent ethnographic studies of Muslim societies that for you um, engaged uh, Islamic texts in novel ways, um, and what is it about them that stands out to you? I'd already mentioned uh, Stefania Pandolfo's work, um, the recent one, Not of the Soul, and that I think I think it certainly stands out as as um, as a text that does something different with texts, right? As uh, and and I, I guess I, I already kind of alluded to this difference between uh, turning to concepts that are textually contoured, certainly, but turning to them not for kind of tracing a textual lineage, but for looking. The concepts and what they open up ethnographically, right? So in in that book, again, she does, you know, she she refers to you know a, a variety of textual authorities, like um, you know like like Al-Ghazali and Ibn Sina and Ibn Khaldun um, and Ibn Qayyim, but these these figures, you know, <laughs> they don't uh, align in any kind of conventional genealogy of the Islamic revival, right? And she, she doesn't say that, oh, you know, because Ibn Sina's psychology is um, helpful for her in, in kind of um, understanding the uh, kind of a, a Sufi imagination or um, it's, not, it's helpful for her in thinking about contemporary Islamic psychological practices. She's not saying that this should become a new paradigm for interpreting Islam in Morocco or something. Um, and the, the Muslims, again, th- that she writes about don't abide by like uh, they don't take up one position against others in kind of a sectarian grid of intelligibility right you know between like Sufis and Salafis or traditionalists and modernists um 
And so on the one hand, you know, this can be read as a kind of eclecticism, you know, or hybridity. Um, but her own effort is quite different. And so she's not referring to these kinds of pre-existing contexts or the, this kind of pre-existing intellectual genealogies that we can kind of turn to to gain, you know, establish a kind of uh, commensurability right across each of the sites of her ethnography. Instead, she's tr- her, her work tries to enter the lives of its characters for how they encounter kind of the, the the difficulty of life and then seeks out a language adequate to it. And so she finds each of these resort, kind of each of these figures that I mentioned earlier to be uh, resources for thinking through that. And so positioned that way, again, on the one hand, it's, it's a more kind of precarious relationship to one's uh, archive as well as one's uh, ethnographic sites in a way. But at the same time, for myself anyway, it, it ends up far more... Uh, kind of engaging, productive, and and uh, imaginative too. Um, in, in thinking about other other texts, I find one of the chapters that I'm I've been struggling with a lot was the most difficult one to write, and also remains as I'm like going back to it to revise it remains very difficult. Is on um, it's it's based in ethnography at an orphanage at the border between Jordan and Syria, and the uh, it's it's based in. Um, <laughs> Lots of interviews with the the steward of this orphanage, who actually at the moment has COVID nineteen. So may God preserve him. But uh, the the this figure was an imam in Daraa city at the at one of the two mosques from which the revolution uh, sprung. And so um, and he, he was hunted by the regime and tortured by it. And then he escaped to uh, Zatari camp and he was there for a couple of years. And now he's at the orphanage and he's been he's living there taking care of um taking care of these families who were the families of and the relatives of his former uh, friends and fellows in Dara who now have either been disappeared into the regime's prisons or uh, killed in the protests or whatnot. But the, 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 the specific difficulty, I guess, is is a broader one. It's not necessarily related to anthropology of Islam, but it's the difficulty of writing about violence in ways that um, in, in, in ways that once kind of don't try to uh, domesticate it or or kind of exploit it right for kind of its spectacularity or, or for its affect in various ways and so that's I, I find that like a very tricky balance to strike and so um, I've been trying to read more broadly on questions of, of uh, you know anthropologies of violence but also broader um, broader literary texts on violence as well and, and trying to trying to get some traction on this question and um, I haven't seen I haven't seen much within the anthropology of Islam that deals directly with this but that could also be my own um, my own limitations so if you have any suggestions on that I'd, be, I'd love to hear them well I mean we have your book to look forward to which will hopefully become a text to look to that in the field <laughs> inshallah um, and so my last question will be um, kind of turning back to our project here, Reading Muslims. And I'm curious, you know, you're, as I mentioned earlier, one of the you know leaders of the Ethnographic Methods Hub. And so I'm curious, what excites you about this project? Um, and how would you, I mean, that's you know, one part of the question, and then how would you explain, you know, this uh, excitement or this uh, 
project to both specialists in your field, but also to a broader audience, you know, who might kind of come across this podcast and wonder what, what we're doing here. Um, so if you could speak to that, that'd be great. Earlier, we were saying, you know, that, that there's various ways of reading that one specific phrase in that in that that article of Assad's from decades ago. Here again, you know, there, there's various ways of reading the title of the project as well, and so um, you know, one can read it in terms of reading about Muslims or reading Muslims, you know, however however many degrees of mediation <laughs> one wants to imply there, or you can read it as an an, an approach toward Muslims who are reading. And I think covered in both those ways of, of approaching the title of the project, um, there's there's the space of, um, you know, so many disciplines, so many ways of, of approaching these same questions. And um, I think what I find exciting about it myself is um, m- maybe some of the, the points of, uh, not so much of overlap, but the points of divergence between how uh, different disciplines and, and scholars working in different disciplines, how they would approach this question of textuality, um, of Muslims reading, of reading Muslims. And um, I would hope maybe that that as we get further into the project, that then it can also become a site for thinking about these disciplinary differences as well, and kind of uh, taking, a, t- taking a further analytic move or a reflexive move to think about how these disciplines kind of form us as well as readers of reading Muslims. Um, so yeah, and, and so in terms of, of, of presenting the project more broadly, um, I mean, on the one hand, you know, um, Muslims have a have a particular kind of public position as readers, as you know, variously non-reflexive readers of their own texts. They've also emerged as a literary object or a textual object in their own right, right? With the with with genres of uh, you know ethnographic and legal and you know forensic uh, texts dedicated to Muslims. And so, if I were presenting the project more broadly, I would just say something about how you know it, it allows us to consider how Muslims themselves read and read themselves and read others and then also to take a more critical look also at how others read Muslims reading. Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Basit. Um, I think we can wrap up here. This has been wonderful. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank um, you so much. And uh, thank you again all to all our listeners. Um, this has been the Reading Muslims uh, podcast. And uh, I guess we sign off here. Thank you, Basit.